0: On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is a doozy. Four men murdered six women and are suspected of possibly abducting and torturing over 18 others. Welcome to the terrifying case of the Chicago Rippers, also known as the Ripper Crew. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. no commercials to offer, no business to discuss, so we are going to jump right into this case. Chicago was suffering under a string of horrific killings in the years of 1981 and 82. The first was 28-year-old Linda Sutton, who was found raped and stabbed to death on May 23rd. Her body was found 10 days later in Villa Park. Lorianne Borowski and Shue Mok were taken in May of 1982, but their bodies weren't found until that fall. June 13th comes around, and Angel York was attacked, but miraculously, she survived. On August 28th, Sandra Delaware was found on a riverbank with her left breast gone, and evidence she'd been strangled to death. Rose Beck Davis was found in a similar condition on September 8th. So let's go back and start on a rainy day in June of 1981. Three detectives head out on a call about a body found at the Moonlit Hotel in Villa Park. This isn't all that strange at the outset of the call. The Moonlit Hotel is home to, shall we say, some shady characters and was a known place to buy sex or drugs. On this particular day, they are responding to a call from a hotel maid who noticed a pretty bad odor coming from a nearby field and it was getting worse. She reports it to the hotel manager who goes out into a field behind the hotel. Amongst the trash in this field... He expects to find a dead animal. What he finds is a deceased woman that is mostly bones, with a few pieces of flesh still clinging to her skeleton. He is the one who will call the police. The detectives arrive, and it's obvious the victim has been there for some time. She is so decomposed they can see her skeletal structure, but there is still maggot activity occurring. It is also obvious that this is not a natural death, since she has a gag in her mouth and her hands are bound with handcuffs. A sweater and underwear are still on the body, with the underwear appearing to have been pulled down. In her socks, they discover a small amount of dollar bills, which makes robbery seem an unlikely motive. Foremost of importance is to identify this victim. Then they need to figure out if she'd been killed here and this is the crime scene, or is this a secondary site? The way to do that is to examine the ground beneath her to see if bodily fluids are in the soil under her. This presents an interesting thought. If this is a secondary scene, due to the advanced state of decomp, then that means someone kept the body for quite some time and lived with the smell until finally delivering it here to this spot. That didn't seem likely, and yet, By the state of the body it seems she'd been there a while so why hadn't anyone noticed the smell sooner the deputy coroner pat seichman has the job of trying to determine cause and manner of death he will also take fingerprints and dental impressions while this is going on an initial search of missing persons turns up nothing because of the small bills in her socks police suspect she was a sex worker and that would probably make identification harder Fortunately, in this case, they get lucky. In two weeks, they are able to identify the victim as 21-year-old Linda Sutton. She had a record of arrest for prostitution. She also had two children that currently lived with their grandmother. Most shocking of all is when the coroner determines Linda has only been dead for three days. The advanced state of decomposition is because of the large wounds to her chest. Namely, her breasts have been removed. These wounds allowed the parasites to bring on decomposition, quick access to the body, and they break it down in no time. Eight months later, in February of 82, a 35-year-old waitress is abducted. Her car is found with the gas tank needle on empty, leading to the assumption she had run out of gas and was walking to get some or looking for assistance when she is taken. Her purse is on the front seat and the keys are in the ignition. Her body is found naked on an embankment near the road. She's been raped, tortured, and her body mutilated, a breast amputated. The police request that this detail not be reported so they can keep this little tidbit for interrogation reasons, as in only the person responsible would know it. Just a few days later, another woman's body is found raped and strangled. Her breasts have not been removed, but they have been severely bitten. It appears the assailant also masturbated over her body. This leads to a psychiatric assessment of the crime, which comes to the conclusion that this attacker lives locally, has a family, and likely loves animals. In May of 1982, Laurieann Borowski is abducted from her place of work as she's walking across the parking lot. Her body is discovered in a cemetery known as Clarendon Hills, not far from where Linda Sutton's body was found. Lorianne had been raped repeatedly and her breast had been severed. She was ultimately killed by a hatchet. Just two weeks after Lorianne's brutal murder, the next victim is taken. On May 29th, Shwe Mak is going home after working at her family's restaurant in Streamwood. She is riding with her brother, but the two of them get into an argument, and that results in her getting out of the car to finish the ride home with another relative, a relative who the brother thinks is right behind them, but they are not, and Shui is abducted. Her body is found in August at a construction site, and it shows signs of having been mutilated in much the same way as Lorianne. It's pretty obvious to police at this point that these killings are all similar in nature. Big problem, though, they don't have any leads. The next victim is Angel York and she is the first one to be able to give the police any clues at all. She gives them clues, not with her dead body, but with her voice, because she survives. She tells police she was abducted by not one man, but multiple men driving a red van. They used handcuffs on her for the purpose of rape and torture. They also forced Angel to cut her own breast with a knife. This apparently sent one of the men into some kind of frenzy he cut her more deeply and then masturbated into the wound before sealing it up with duct tape and tossing her out of the van into the streets this occurs in june of 1982 but what information angel gives to police doesn't prevent more murders sandra delaware is found in august her body was dumped along the edge of the chicago river Sandra's wrists are bound together with a shoelace and her left breast has been removed. There is also a bra knotted around her throat. Sandra had only been dead about six hours when her body was found. Less than two weeks later, marketing executive Rose Beck Davis, age 30, goes missing. Rose is found stabbed, raped, and strangled on September 8th. Her body is behind a stairwell of an apartment building. A sock is tied around her throat, her clothing is in disarray, and her face is crushed. They will discover that Rose had been beaten with a hatchet. There were deep cuts on her breasts and her stomach was riddled with small puncture wounds. In October, a sex worker named Beverly Washington, age 20, comes face to face with the killers and lives to tell about it. Beverly is found in the trash by a passerby that discovers her there one breast is severed and the other is nearly so she's rushed to the hospital and lives to tell the police her story when a man offers to pay her more money than she's asking she agrees this man looks to be about 25. he's a slender white man wearing a flannel shirt and square-toed boots he's got greasy brown hair and a mustache he asks beverly to get into the back of the van and when she does he produces a gun and orders her to take off her clothes She obeys because he's got a gun, and after she's undressed, he puts handcuffs on her and forces her to perform oral sex. Then he threatens to hurt her if she doesn't take the handful of pills that he is holding out. She again complies. As she is slipping into unconsciousness, the last thing she sees is him holding out a cord, and before she passes out completely, Beverly is sure she's about to die. It's pretty obvious that when she was dumped into the trash, the assailant was leaving her there for dead. Beverly tells police that the van she was tortured in was red with tinted windows and that there was a wooden divider separating the front from the back. She also recalls feathers and a roach clip hanging from the rearview mirror. It's just a few weeks later when police pull over a red van matching the description Beverly gave them. The man behind the wheel has red hair and doesn't look anything like the assailant Beverly described. And yet, the van is a dead ringer for the one in her description. The driver is Eddie Spreitzer, and he tells police that the van belongs to his boss, Robin Gecht. The officers tell Eddie to take them to Geck's house. When Robin comes outside, he's wearing a flannel shirt and square-toed boots, and he physically matches the description given by Beverly. He's not at all bothered by the presence of the police. He seems like he doesn't have a care in the world. So he's either innocent or he's arrogant. Take your pick. It's not too long before Beverly picks Robin's photo out of a set of photos as the man who assaulted her and left her for dead. Police go back to pay Robin a visit and lo and behold, he has himself a lawyer. It isn't long after that before police realize the red van is connected to other assaults like Angel, who was forced to mutilate her own breasts and was tossed out of the van afterwards. At this point, police feel like Eddie Spritzer and Robin Gecht are involved and responsible for perhaps three of the assaults and murders. Initially, they don't get a whole lot of info from either of them, but Eddie is showing signs of cracking. They also get the impression that Eddie is afraid of Robin. The police lean harder on Eddie, and he does indeed give in. And due to what is probably a combination of fear and guilt, Eddie produces a 78-page statement. Eddie's first admission is that he drove the van as Robin did a drive-by shooting, which paralyzed one man and killed another. Police are very familiar with this event. After this, Eddie says Robin told him to pick up a black sex worker who Robin had sex with and then afterwards took the woman into an alley and cut off her breasts with a knife. He then put the severed breast on the floor of the van. While telling authorities about this, Eddie seemed genuinely upset, saying he didn't like blood. Eddie also told them that Robin would have sex with the severed body part, sometimes right there in the van. Eddie tells them about another black woman that Robin shot in the head, and then after chaining her up and adding bowling balls, dumped her into the water. Eddie will later claim, when talking to Jennifer Furio in the book The Serial Killer Letters, that he saw Robin beat a woman with a hammer and that upon witnessing it, Eddie threw up. But don't feel too bad for Eddie because later he himself cut off the breasts of a woman and left her for dead. Eddie goes on to claim that Robin forced him to have sex with the wounds left behind. By the time Eddie's massive statement is done, he's basically given them the details on seven murders and one aggravated assault. Investigators now take this info and move into another room where Robin is waiting. They lay out a collection of photos of victims Eddie had identified. Robin gives them a little look-see and doesn't seem to be very interested or concerned at all. He of course denies knowing any of them. Police escort him to a spot where he can see his pal Eddie sitting, probably hoping it would shake him up and let him know who was talking. It didn't bother Robin, but it did bother someone. It bothered Eddie. Once Eddie saw Robin looking at him, he immediately changed his tune. He started saying that Robin didn't kill anyone and his story started zigging and zagging all over the place. Now investigators have no idea what to believe. Eddie points the finger at another man, Andrew Corcorales, who is Eddie's sister's boyfriend. Eddie says that Andrew is the killer. Police then ask Robin if he knows Andrew. Robin says, yep, and he even has the address where Andrew lives. But Robin still doesn't look concerned or shaken at all. He also seemed to have info on Andrew that Eddie did not. Clearly frustrated with how things are going, police go to talk to a third potential suspect in these killings. It's also making them wonder, is it possible all three of them are responsible? Once they get their hands on Andrew, takes no time at all for him to spill the beans. Andrew talks about abducting women off the street, raping them and stabbing them. He calls out different instruments they use, like tin can lids, razors ice picks and knives. They also used piano wire for what? For severing one or both of their victims' breasts. Once amputated, they would masturbate on the body parts. Andrew admits to the murders of Rose Beck Davis and Lorian Borowski and then goes on to more or less, whether intentionally or not, admit to the deaths of 18 women in total. Andrew describes the attack on Sandra Delaware and admits to shoving a rock into her mouth to keep her from screaming while forcing a wine bottle into her body with such force that it caused her to bleed severely. He then admitted to stabbing her with a knife. Sandra's autopsy confirmed these admissions by Andrew. They didn't just get details from Andrew about the crimes. They were busy asking people who knew these three, Andrew, Eddie, and Robin, questions about the trio it isn't long before they find out that robin gecht has a thing about women's breasts this guy asks women he knows to let him shove pins into their breasts he also seems to inflict pain and damage to his wife's breast sometimes leading to infections but for god knows what reason she never turns him in for these incidents Police keep asking questions and talking to people, and pretty soon they find themselves talking with Andrew's mentally slow brother, Tommy, and police find out that it isn't a trio of killers. It's a quartet. Tommy confesses to what this Ripper crew was up to. It's the 80s, and in a two-part episode I did a few weeks ago called The Devil's Puppets, we know that Satanic Panic was a thing. It appears that these guys were into the worshiping Satan vibe, was kind of popular at the time, This group, however, took it to a whole new level. According to Tommy, they worshipped Satan in Robin's attic, where he had an altar and six red and black crosses painted. They would go to Robin's house at night and try to contact Satan. This is where they would bring the severed breasts of their victims. They would kneel around it while Robin read from the Satanic Bible, and then they would all masturbate onto the amputated body part. Afterwards, Robin would cut it up, and they would each eat a piece. Tommy admits to two murders and to being present at almost a dozen of the rituals in Robin's attic. Police ask him why he would do such things and Tommy says in all seriousness that Robin has power. He has power to make you do whatever he tells you to do. He also admits to being afraid of what Robin would do to him if he did not obey. Andrew will later say that Robin had a box in which he kept the breasts from their rituals and claims at one time to have seen as many as 15 pieces of breasts in there. Police, of course, are going to want to check out this supposed ritual room. And they find it, along with a rifle, I'm guessing the one used in the drive-by-shooting, as well as the trophy box, which was empty. But nonetheless, it confirmed what Andrew had said about its existence. Who are these guys? Who is Robin? Well, Robin Gecht is reportedly a happily married man with three children, though I do not know how happily married you can be if one half of the couple is having her breasts mutilated. The other members of the crew also seem to have happy home lives and steady jobs to pay the bills. Just a group of guys doing their thing. Unfortunately, their thing is horrendous. Let's go to trial. Robin, at first, thinks he's going to get out of going to trial by using an insanity excuse. But when he's examined for his level of competence, he's found sane and able to stand trial. If you can believe it, his first trial ends in a mistrial. So he has a second one that begins on September 20th, 1983. The prosecutors lay out the M.O. of the Chicago Ripper crew for the jury. They nab women, hold them against their will, and then torture them with things like needles and ice picks. They are gang raped by the crew, and their breast or breasts are removed with wire for sexual gratification and use in the rituals they would later perform. Usually the women who experienced horrific pain from these events, and who were usually alive when the breasts were amputated, would die. Two of them Beverly and Angel, survived their encounter with the crew. Now, Robin could not be tried with any of the murders themselves. The reason, because none of his accomplices would testify against him, and there was the pesky problem of the police had no actual physical evidence linking him to the murders. They had testimony from women who claimed Robin asked them to cut off their nipples, but this, along with the confessions of the others, weren't admissible. They went after Robin for attempted murder, rape, deviant sexual assault, aggravated battery, and armed violence. And they did get him for those. The jury found him guilty on all counts. Robin was sentenced to 120 years in prison. Tommy, who was 23 at the time, tried to block the use of his confession, but was unsuccessful. In 1984, He was convicted and sentenced to 70 years for his part in the murder of Lori Ambrowski. His brother, Andrew Korkorales, went to trial in two separate counties. First, for the murder of Rose Beck Davis. In Andrew's confession, he admitted to abducting Rose and forcing her to get into the van. He also admitted to beating her to death with a hatchet. In just three hours, the jury came back with a guilty verdict on rape and murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison. At Andrew's second trial, he decides he's going to take back everything he confessed to on four different occasions. He now denies that he killed or raped anyone and says that his confessions were coerced by the police. He says the police made false promises and even beat him to get him to say whatever they wanted. Prosecutor Brian Tellender went over the different interrogations that were done by six different detectives and two other prosecutors but Andrew still claimed he only said what they wanted him to say. Andrew went so far as to claim that the detectives gave him the details of the crime so he would know exactly what to say. According to Detective Warren Wilkos, when he had shown Andrew photos of the victims, Andrew had pointed out Lori Ann and said, quote, that's the girl Eddie Spritzer and I killed in the cemetery, end quote. In the end, the jury had to decide between Andrew's story about the eight officials that supposedly all treated him in a coercive and forceful way and the evidence. After just a few hours, the jury returned and found him guilty of the murder of Lori Ann and sentenced him to death. At his sentencing hearing, Andrew keeps denying his guilt and a prison chaplain and a counselor stand up in his defense to say he can be rehabilitated. Andrew also claims that he had ineffective counsel at the first trial for Rosebeck Davis and his lawyers for the second trial say, the penalty doesn't fit the crime. I'm going to chime in here and say that if you beat someone to death with a hatchet after raping and torturing them, the death penalty does fit the crime. That's my opinion for what it's worth. Anyway, the panel of judges dismissed the appeal and upheld the death sentence. But Andrew's attorneys weren't done. They tried again saying Andrew was schizophrenic and didn't know what he was doing. The trial lawyer should have entered an insanity fence, but hadn't, that he should have been evaluated, and hadn't, all kinds of things. And there is a train going by my house at the moment and they have the squeakiest breaks ever. So if you hear it, I'm sorry. In the end, after the district judge asks around and gets his answer, he decides that just because Andrew's behavior is bizarre and abnormal, It does not prove he was impaired and not responsible. His death sentence is again upheld. Andrew was scheduled to be executed on March 17th of 1999, but there is some stuff going on in Illinois at the time. The governor, George Ryan, and Illinois Supreme Court Justice Moses Harrison are convinced to stay Andrew's execution. Why? Because there are those calling for a moratorium on all executions in Illinois. The driving factor for this is because a man named Anthony Porter, who had an IQ of just 51, was on death row and awaiting execution for a double homicide. He'd been in prison for 16 years. Turns out some exculpatory evidence turned up, and that caused a stay of execution just two days before the September 23, 1998 execution was to occur. Another man ends up confessing to the crime, and everyone is now looking at the fact that they almost executed an innocent man. However, Governor Ryan is thinking on the moratorium, and he's thinking about Andrew. He isn't convinced to make a move yet, because looking at Andrew's crimes, he's convinced the death penalty is a just sentence. The Illinois Supreme Court reverses this day of execution for Andrew by a vote of 4-3, to And a few hours before Andrew was due to be executed, the governor put out a statement saying the jury had decided Andrew's fate justly and that all of his attempts to appeal his conviction had failed and Governor Ryan had no intention of standing in the way of justice. Andrew was put to death by lethal injection, believing to the very end it wasn't actually going to happen. By January of 2000, Governor Ryan announced a moratorium on executions in the state. There's some speculation that Ryan waited until Andrew was put to death, knowing he was going to do the moratorium. Many believe he had his doubts about the death penalty, but felt Andrew deserved it and thus waited. So we have one last trial to talk about, and that is for Eddie Spritzer. Eddie had pled guilty on April 2nd, 1984, to killing Rose Davis, Sandra Delaware, Shway Mock, and a drug dealer named Rafael Tirado. He got a life sentence for each of those murders. He still needed to go to trial for the murder of Linda Sutton. Eddie appeared at a bench trial in February of 1986, but he reserved his right to have a jury decide his fate. He admitted that he and the rest of the crew had abducted Linda when she was walking near Wrigley Field. They took her to a wooded field near the hotel where she was staying and handcuffed her, raped her and cut off her breasts. They then raped her again and left her there to die of her injuries. The public defender that was in charge of his defense, Carol Affinso, Affinso? Affinson, something like that, tried to present him as an immature and simple man, and that he was just following the orders of Robin, who led the gang. His relatives come forward and portray him as a quiet young man who was bullied a lot. On the other hand, former friend of eddie said to the chicago tribune that eddie had bragged about what he'd done and had laughed over the mutilations and the killings on march 4th he was convicted by a jury and given the death penalty he was sent to death row at pontiac state correctional facility in joliet illinois he did the usual appeal thing until they were all exhausted his attorney gary pritchard argued that his client had been denied due process and that after the trial An examination revealed Eddie had brain damage. In October of 2002, Eddie is 41 years old and one of 140 inmates on death row who is having their cases heard due to the discussion of the moratorium on capital punishment. The attorney, Gary Pritchard, is asking for mercy on Eddie's behalf, saying his low IQ of 76 and his troubled past made him easy for Robin to manipulate. The families of the Ripper's crew's victims were present and vehemently opposed a change to Eddie's death sentence. In the end, Governor Ryan pardoned four of the death row inmates and gave blanket clemency from the death penalty to the rest, meaning Eddie. The victims' families were furious at this, and I can't say I blame them. There are all kinds of debates we could get into about the Chicago Ripper crew. Some people believe this was a Manson-esque type of thing and that maybe Robin didn't really do the actual killings. The other three members of the crew did have low IQs and might have been easily manipulated. There is also a supposed connection between Robin Gecht and John Wayne Gacy. But I find such conflicting statements regarding that supposed connection, I cannot say for sure. In the end, what is true is that Robin Gecht had a thing for inflicting torture and a thing for breasts, and he found others who would willingly go along with his evil tendencies. Who wielded the weapons? Doesn't matter all that much to me. Robin seems to be the driving force, and how he found himself three people so easily pulled in astounds me. And here's more astounding info. Tommy Kokorellis was released in 2019 at the age of 58 after serving 36 of his 70 year sentence. And if you can believe it, Robin could possibly be released at the age of 89, if he's still alive. That wraps up this episode of Crying Biscuit, hang tight for the final crumb. If you want, you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Crime Biscuit, or send me a Gmail at acrimebiscuit@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. Don't be hanging out in satanic chapels where human body parts are frequently on the menu. And if someone you know is, For God's sakes, call 911. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.